All right, please turn with me over to Luke chapter 24. We don't have far to go at all. Verses 46 through 53 is where we're going to be looking. And the title is, What Jesus Believes is Necessary. What's necessary? Well, he's going to tell us, using that very word, this is necessary. And um, so that becomes something that really should grab our attention. We're going to see the necessity of his suffering and his resurrection. We're going to see the necessity to preach of that suffering and resurrection, calling people to repentance. And we are going to find that he believes it's necessary for us to be empowered. So that's what we're going to be looking at. So let's just read this section. It's so small. Um, and then we'll come back and begin to look at it. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And, so it's also necessary, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. So in verse 46, we see the necessity of the crucifixion and the resurrection. We took quite a bit of time over these last couple of weeks in our um, study at the closing chapters to look at Jesus' suffering and to consider the resurrection. So I don't want to go back into those topics in, you know, in, in the same detail we did already, but just to know that this, this was not something that just was an unfortunate set of circumstances that caught the Lord by surprise, and then he just did the best he could with what he was dealt. That's not what's going on at all. It, it was, Jesus says, the one who suffered. It was necessary that the Messiah, myself, that I would suffer and that I would rise from the dead the third day. This had to happen. Um, again, it's written, he says, in Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, two clear chapters that speak of the suffering of the Lord. And so this is where you would find it written about his suffering. And so we read that he was he was bruised, and the, the wrath of the Father was poured out upon the Son. Why would the Father pour out his wrath upon his Son? Because Jesus took in his body our sin. And sin had to be punished, and so he punished his Son, Jesus, so that we wouldn't have to be punished. So that that wrath would not have to come upon us. Anybody who says, well, I just don't believe that God will judge, knows nothing of the Bible. They know nothing of the Lord whatsoever. They know nothing of the gospel message. This is complete um, fairy tale land. And it, it may be just their opinion, and that's fine, but it's not what the Bible says at all. The Bible speaks of the, the, the deadliness of sin and how something had to be done. I mean, all through the Old Testament, you see the sacrifice Hundreds of thousands, millions of sacrifices made for sin over the, over the centuries of Israel's worship. The first sin we see in the garden, Adam and Eve, it was, it, they were covered, literally covered, 
with the skins of an animal that had been sacrificed. I mean, this is the imagery we find from the garden all the way to the book of Revelation. And so these things had to be. He had to suffer and die on the cross. Because if he didn't suffer, then humanity would suffer separated from the Father for all of eternity in the lake of fire. And God just did not want that to be the case. So it was written that he must suffer, but it's also written that he must rise from the dead the third day. I want to turn to a couple of the passages that speak of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Psalm 16, verses 9 and 10 states, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, or the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So here's a prophecy that although Jesus was going to go to Sheol, he was not going to be left in Sheol. Um, and that he was not going to endure corruption. So he spent those three days there. Here is, that's one passage, a significant passage that speaks of the resurrection. Another one is in Psalm 118, verses 18 through 24. And we read there, The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So we see here you know, the Lord speaking of the, the judgment that was going to come upon him um, and saying, yet the Lord delivered me out of this. And so we find um, passages like that that speak of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is if you, we're going to be there, we're going to just touch it a little bit. But if you want to read a sermon that draws upon some Old Testament passages, then the first um, gospel message that was preached by Peter in Acts chapter 2 is a good place to read and see how he drew upon that which was written and how he proclaimed the suffering and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And both of them are necessary for our salvation. If Jesus would have died but not risen from the dead, then he died um, as a good guy, um, but was claiming to be something that he wouldn't and was a false prophet because he said he'd rise from the dead the third day. So he might have had done a lot of good things and said a lot of good things, but he certainly wouldn't have been the Messiah. And there would be no atonement for our sins in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, but, of course, um, he did rise from the dead. And so not only did he have it placed upon him, but then he defeated sin and death as he rose from the dead. So now we can have the hope of everlasting life. We can have this. So it is necessary that he had to suffer and now you can imagine that statement being made to the disciples. They're, they're, I mean, they're, they don't have their theology all lined out like you do in your mind right now. They, they will, okay? They will. But right now at this point, they're like, but why, Lord? I mean, why did, why did you have to go through that? I mean, remember when you rode into Jerusalem on the donkey and you're, Zechariah and was talking about all this and then you were going to come and you were going to destroy and and you can imagine as he tried to answer their bewilderment 
that he would make a statement and says, listen, guys, it had to happen. I had to. It was written that these things should take place. And that's an important word right there, isn't it? It was written, therefore it had to happen. What is written in Scripture must happen. It has to take place. The, pro- the prophecy of Scriptures, the speak of the first coming of Christ, born of a virgin, and, and, and all the rest, you know, betrayed by his friend, his clothes divided. I mean, all that we read, all those prophecies, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, they all had to be fulfilled because it was written. This is not just a, a book that, you know, some places it's right, some places it's wrong. It's more right here, it's less right there. And that's what some, you know, modern theologians have tried to do. Is like, well, we believe that these parts of the Bible is really true. And we believe that these parts of the Bible is probably true. And we believe that this part of the, the Bible is probably not true. And that part of the Bible is definitely not true. Well, how do you know that? I mean, you got your four categories, but how do you know which category to put this in? Because, uh, you know, you read the Bible, and it's all, we're told to take all the Scripture as believable. So how do you know which bucket to put that chapter or that verse in? Because it's, there's no flag on Scripture, you know, totally true, partially true. You know, you don't find that. So, so where do you go to get the answer to those questions? Well, you've got to go to these modern theologians that have put forth this idea, of course. And how do they know that? They don't. But in the process of doing that, what have they done? They have elevated themselves above Scripture. What they said is, here's Scripture. It's an imperfect book, but I have a perfect or a better understanding than at least this Bible of what parts to accept and not. And so in their full arrogance, they think they know better than the Bible. So in reality, if it were true, and believe me, it's not. But if it was true, you might as well take your Bible and throw it in the, in the trash can and follow them around. Because they know better than Scripture. But don't do that. Because these guys are lost and they're confused. So we believe that if it's written, we must. Now, why do we believe that? Because it's inspired. We believe this is, if it's written, it must come to pass because it's inspired. What does that mean? God breathed this text to us. He gave this to us. And he moved upon men by the Holy Spirit to write these things down. So it's inspired. Because it's inspired of God, therefore, it's inerrant. It's true. And if you don't have inspiration, then it's hard to get to the inerrancy part, right? And that's the way, you know, a lot of these who look at the Bible, well, part's true, part's not true. It's, they don't believe in inspiration in the same way. They'll, but they'll use the word inspiration, but they've got a different definition of what it means. Um, so if it's inspired, if God gave us th- this holy book, then it's inerrant. It is trustworthy. It is true. And if this inspired and errant uh, word has come to us from God, then it is sufficient. It can speak to us about all issues. It can deal with our need for salvation. It can deal with our need for eternal life when we die and to receive a new body. And it's authoritative. It is able to speak or wherever it speaks on any issue, it is the final word. 
So inspired, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative. That's why when we read that it, it is written, and Jesus said these things had to happen because of these truths concerning the Word of God. And um, those that want to push the Word of God aside and suggest other ideas and say, well, this was written a long time ago, or, you know, I don't know about this. You know, when it, so often the people that are saying all these things, and not in every instance, sometimes these are people that have been theologically trained and they somehow have fallen off the rails. But the majority of people who want to say, well, you can't trust the Bible, have never read the Bible. They've not read it. They've not studied it. And so um, just be aware of that. Um, it is something, if it is written, it is true, and you can expect for it to be fulfilled. Even if it's something as unbelievable as the Son of God having to suffer on the cross and rise from the dead. And so we read there. So verses 7, 47 through 48, we come to another necessity, and that's the necessity of preaching. So he says, all right, it's necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And carrying on in the, the list of necessities, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. So we'll break this down a little bit. And I want to begin here on this idea of preaching. And, and that's, first of all, we are privileged to preach. We are privileged to be the ones who get to make this declaration concerning the Lord. The word preach here is keruso, and it means to make a public declaration, proclaim aloud. That's what preaching is. Well, I'm going to preach with my life, not my words. Sorry, that's not what it means. Now, I think your life should certainly be a witness and a testimony, but you got to preach with your words. you got to make a, a proclamation aloud. Well, I just want people, you know, to to look at my life and to know that Jesus is the Lord. Well, how, how is that going to work out? How do they know that your life is lived the way it is because of Jesus? I, this one man writing of his own testimony, when he found out that his, the owner of a company he had worked for, um, uh, well, the owner of the company got, got saved. Let me start this over. The testimony of the owner of the company got saved and then he decided to start having prayer meetings um, at the, the, the places where everybody worked. And he was shocked to see this man walk in. And as he walked in, he goes, are you a Christian? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, you're the reason why I haven't, it took me so long to get saved. He goes, why? What did I do? He goes, well, I looked at your life and you had it all together. And you never once mentioned Jesus. And I figured if you can pull it together and live a good moral life, so can I. You see, it's not just, again, it's not all about, it's not just living some moral life. It's living it to the glory of the Lord, right? We live our lives to the glory of God. We're not, we're not you know, moralists that are out there to just achieve that. We're, we want to proclaim the name of Jesus both in word and by the way we live our lives. So, um, K. Russo, we preach, we speak aloud, and it is a privilege that we are allowed to speak. I got three verses for you that just... I believe they bring an, an emphasis to the privilege. 2 Corinthians 5.20. Now, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. You are an ambassador for Christ. You are his representative to this world. 
Do you know what an ambassador? We send these people overseas. We send them to places to represent the will and the desire of the American government to that other nation. You are an ambassador sent by the Lord to communicate his will. As though God were pleading through us. Boy, that's just a heavy statement, isn't it? It isn't just that we're mouthing something. It's not that we're just, you know, talking about something we read in Scripture. No, the Lord himself is pleading through you to other people that they might be reconciled to God. And so this gives you a sense of how we should be communicating to people. I talked about this on Sunday just a little bit, but it's not that we just put the gospel out there for your evaluation, take it or leave it. You know, no passion on our part. Paul used the words of trying to persuade people, but here you can see the word pleading. God is pleading through us and calling people to be reconciled to him. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. The Lord wants people to come to himself and there should be a a cry that comes from our voice to them. So what a privilege to be an ambassador and have God plead through us as we would preach the gospel. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 4 is another one. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. And it's that phrase right there that's underlined on the screen entrusted with the gospel. The Lord has put trust in you and me and the church, his disciples, to get the word out. Here is the most important thing. My entire life on planet Earth was all about this one thing. I'm going to give it to you, and I want you to be certain that you go and you get this message out. He entrusts us with the responsibility of speaking and who cares what men have to think? It's God we answer to. He's the one that's going to test our hearts. 1 Corinthians 4.1 says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. You're a steward of the mysteries of God. What does mysteries mean? A truth that was previously unknown. What was previously unknown is that God was going to send his son and he was going to live on this earth, and he was going to die on the cross, and he was going to rise from the dead. And through his sacrifice, people can be reconciled. Now, it was written, and there was prophecies, but boy, this is why you know, even the disciples struggled to be able to see what he was saying, because there was not enough information, um, you know, like we have in the New Testament, to put a, you know, the gospel message together like that. It was there. You can look back, and you can see it. But now, that which was once a mystery, now a truth made clear, you're a steward and I'm a steward of it. It's in my keeping. And what, do I, what does a, a steward do? A steward is responsible for the master's property, goods, and uh, wishes. And so we are stewards, we are ambassadors, we have been entrusted with the gospel. So what a privilege. And this isn't just for the... The, you know, the 11 disciples here. This is for us. So um, we speak, we're speaking about the necessity of preaching. And the first thing is that we are privileged to preach. And what do we preach? Well, we preach, the first thing, verse 47, is repentance. We preach repentance. Greek word metanoia. It's the idea to have a change of mind, to have a change of course. 
Uh, we, you know, we, we call people that don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah to change their belief system. And we're not apologetic about it. Because they're going from something that's a falsehood to something that's true. They're going from darkness to light. We're not doing harm to people to tell them to change their religion, to change their philosophy that keeps them from having salvation in the Lord. We're doing them the same favor that was done to us. A salvation is being offered. So repentance, Jesus says, this is necessary to preach it. it meant not only a change of mind, but it's a change of lifestyle. That you are thinking this way, and therefore you are living that way, but now as you change your thinking, and you begin to see that Jesus is Lord, now you begin to change the way in which you live. That which is detrimental to you. Or the way I love to think about it is, the things that caused Jesus Christ to die on the cross, you got to stop doing those. If, if, if you understand Jesus and you esteem the cross and you are grateful for it, then you're not going to keep doing the things that he died on the cross for. You're going to repent of them. You're going to be uh, broken over your sin. And um, so we want to walk away. The very things that put us at odds with God, we're going to leave that behind. So we are to preach repentance or change is necessary. Well, can I just, you know, uh, believe this but not repent and, and change my life? No, you can't. You can't do that. Because if you put your faith and trust in the Lord in the biblical sense of putting faith and trust in the Lord, there is going to be a repentance that's going to come. And um, so, so important that we preach and call people to have a change in their life, to have a change of mind, to have a change in which they live. So we preach repentance. You know, those who um, suggest to us today that people can live however they want to, sexually or, you know, morally, and that we, it's wrong for us to call them to repentance well, what do you do with this? I mean, what do you do with this thing that we call people to repentance? you got to change. That's, that, that's, Jesus would say, it's necessary that you call people to change. It's necessary that you do that. But we don't just preach repentance. We also preach remission or we preach liberation. The word here for um, remission is the act of freeing from an obligation, guilt, or punishment Pardon, cancellation. We get to preach that the guilt and the punishment that was coming has been canceled. We get to preach that you're liberated from the, the deadliness of your sin and the bondage that you are a part of. And so we are able to bring both of these things. We preach re repentance. We, we preach liberation. We talk about the necessity of Jesus' suffering on the cross we preach the necessity of, 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 yeah, of, of his resurrection, that people need to repent, that people are liberated. And the other piece that we see there in verse 47 is um, in remission of sins should be preached in his name to all the nations. We preach Jesus. We, we're talking about a specific person by which you can Re, you know, you should be repenting and turning to, and you can be liberated from. It isn't that you can just go and you can choose any name of any religious figure, and then that's okay. 
that's not what the Bible says. The Bible calls us to preach in the name of Jesus. Why? Acts 4.12. There is, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's why we preach in his name. Well, that's rather narrow. It's probably more narrow than any of us can imagine, actually. But truth is kind of that way, isn't it? It's very narrow, truth. So we shouldn't be surprised. And there's a broad path that leads to destruction. There are many names that will lead to a path of destruction, but there's only one name that it is necessary for us to preach in so that people might be saved. And, and that is because this is the only God-man. This is the only one that can atone for sins. And so we proclaim him. What else do we learn in this verse? Well, it's still there in verse 47, as we preach at home and abroad. Now to them, their home was Jerusalem, um, and to them, of course, uh, into the nations. The same for us. Our home is Lynchburg. Um, but the furthest part is the same. It's to the nations. And it's amazing to me that Bible-believing, gospel-preaching Christians can actually debate of whether or not we should you know, be involved in missions. I, I honestly, I just feel like running my head into the wall when this comes up. Like, what are we even talking about this for? We preach at home. We preach on the other side of the world. Why are we like struggling to try and figure, well, I just don't know if we should be using the energies of the church to go all the way to the other side of the world. Well, why do you think that? Do you not read what Jesus has to say here? Well, I think we just got to take care of, of home first. Okay. Go out there right now and do it. And while you're doing that, we're going to send somebody else to the other side of the world. I mean, it's not one or the other. It's yes, we do this. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I, I, don't, I don't understand the hang-up, but I certainly have had the conversation about it. I've been rebuked for it. I've been rebuked for, for going overseas. And, and, and doing mission work overseas and have received, you know, letters by it and rebuked for doing this. And, you know, I mean, I could go on in this story. I mean, it just, you wouldn't, I mean, yeah, I mean, somebody shaved their head and came into a meeting with me as a sign of all the trouble that was going to come to my bride because I was forsaking the bride of Jesus Christ and going overseas to preach the gospel. Yeah, I, that, that actually happened. And, um, and as I go, why do, why, where's your hair? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not bashful in those situations. I, I go, where is your hair? I shaved it off. I go, you, sh you shaved that off so it would be a sign to me, didn't you? Yes, I did. And I said, well, you wasted, you know, your, your, your hair there, because this is not right. She said, well, you're forsaking the church, the bride of Christ. I said, what part of the bride of Christ am I forsaking? You know, the one on Leesville Road, that's in the, underneath this red roof, that part of the bride of Christ? Well, I'm not doing that, but when I'm not here and I'm overseas, guess where I'm ministering? With the bride of Christ. So the church in Nepal... The church, you know, in Australia or England or all these different places in Russia where we've gone, that's the bride of Christ too. So 
I don't know. I don't know if this is an issue for you, but it, if it is, it, it shouldn't be. Because look at the words that Jesus is saying. We got to do it. Now, if you forsake preaching in Jerusalem and only go to the ends of the earth, well, stop doing that. And so we, we just, we do them both. And may the Lord continue to lead us and guide us in this. But we reach out here and we reach out around the world. And I am so thankful for the many opportunities the Lord gives us to reach out here in our own town. I am so thankful in this state, around this country. I am thankful for the opportunities we have on the other side of the world. And um, we are stewards of those responsibilities, both in Jerusalem, Lynchburg, and in Central Virginia, State of Virginia, the United States, and the uttermost parts of the world. We've got to go everywhere. And um, so wherever the Lord opens a door and, and leads us, we're going to go. And we're not going to, the church will be better off. The more of us that leave here, the better off it's going to be here. I promise you. It's just the way it is. Church is to be raised up and equipped to do the work of ministry. We're to be like a river, not a pond. Right? Pond collects water. A river has banks that sees water pass through it. That's, that's the goal and that's the focus. Some of us will be those banks of the river, right, holding kind of it all together while we raise up and send out. But, but boy, we just need to see, you know, the blessing passing through. So, yeah, we preach at home. We preach abroad. And he says in verse 48, he says, and you are witnesses of these things. Now, as he speaks to these disciples, they have a unique way in which they were witnesses, right? Because they got to walk with Jesus for three years. They got to, you know, watch him preach the message. They got to watch him heal. They got to watch him walk on water. They saw him die on the cross, and they were able to see his resurrected body. So they were witnesses in a, in a, in a special way. But, you know, we are also those. And the word witness here... Again, the Greek word would be martis, martis, and it simply means uh, one who affirms, one who affirms, a testifier, a witness, as it's translated. And that's who we are. We are those that are to testify that Jesus died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, that you should repent of your sins and you will be liberated and set free. That's what all of us, if you have come to Christ, then you can be a testifier of these things. And you are called to be a testifier of these things. I mean, think about it. If it was only these 11, of course, Judas is out of the game right now. So it's only these 11 that were going to do it. Do you think you would know the gospel today? No, you wouldn't, because as soon as they died, and then, you know, those they spoke to that, you know, in that generation, when they died, then that would be it. But see, that's not the way the Lord has established it, is that you would raise up, you know, people that would go out and proclaim as you've proclaimed. So as somebody was faithful to witness to you and testify of Jesus Christ, now it's our responsibility to go and testify to other people of the same thing. That's why you know the gospel today. Because if only the first century church or even these 11, you know, did it, then it wouldn't have trickled down to us. It would have died out within, you know, 100 years for sure. But because it's being proclaimed over and over again to the ends of the earth, this is why it's come to us. And so it is like a 
relay race. And guess what? The baton's in our hand right now. It's, we're on watch. It's our lap. As a church of Jesus Christ, there's a generation that went before us. You can decide if they did a good job or a bad job, but we, can, we will have to say at least this. They did pass the baton because here we sit. It's in our hand. So it's our job to pass it off to the next generation that comes. And it is nobody else's responsibility. We're on watch. And I, I don't think many of you would disagree. Of course, none of us know the day or the hour, but it is quite possible that we are the anchor leg of that relay race. We're the last ones that are going to have the chance to proclaim the gospel. Now, I'm not setting a date. I'm just saying it is very possible. It's, and that's the case for any generation. So we may be the last ones that ever have the privilege to testify of Jesus Christ. Now, what did I say that Greek word was for witness? Do anybody remember? Martus. Yeah, Kerusa was preaching. Witness is martus. Does that sound like another word you know? Martyr. And actually, this word is translated that way in Acts 22.20. It's, it's the same Greek word, uh, martyr. But And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, and it goes on. So martyr, there is, we could read, and when the blood of your witness Stephen. So the word witness and martyr derive from the same Greek word of martus. Revelation 2.13 speaks of Antipas was my faithful martyr. You could, it could be translated witness. Of course, the context is going to determine whether you translate in English to martyr or to testifier. Um, and of course, a martyr is one who has testified of the Lord unto death. And we are called to testify. So kind of a, a sobering reality when he calls us and says, you are witnesses. You are martyrs. Now, of the 11 that remain, 10 of them we know all died as martyrs. John the Baptist, they had tried, to, I mean, not John the Baptist, John the Beloved, they tried to put him to death, according to church history, but he just was resilient, <laughs> right? They, the, tra the tradition says they threw him in a, a vat of boiling oil, and he just didn't cook, and so they took him out and they exiled him to the island of Patmos. Like, whatever, I don't know what we're going to do with this guy. Just get him out of here. So when Jesus says, you are my witnesses, knowing that, that you know, based on context, this could be translated witnesses or martyr. I mean, it's both right here. They're going to testify and they're going to die as martyrs, which Jesus has talked about to them repeatedly. And the same is true to us. The same is true that we are to both testify and that martyrdom is a possibility. So we live in this country of freedom and of blessing um, and not naive to think that nobody has ever been put to death, to ever think that a, you know, somebody has not been beat up you know, and, and killed for their faith. I'm sure this has happened. We know this has, ha has happened. But it's, it's not certainly a state-sponsored thing. It's not a, something we worry about as you would if you were over, you know, in Afghanistan, you know, setting up Calvary Chapel Kabul. You know what I'm saying? That it would be, you probably are going to die. So there are those that are, you know, that do this. But we need to live like that can happen.
We need to have that mentality because it just kind of purifies everything else when we know. Let me share a story that was shared at this church probably 15, 10, 15 years ago. And this man shared how he was on an outreach trip to Turkey. And when he got there, they found out that one of the, uh, the hosts of the outreach that they were taking part in, and so a group of Americans had gone over there, um, had been receiving death threats because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And so they're like, oh, wow, okay, well, this is, this is serious. And so they went out um, to invite everybody to come to a concert that they might share the gospel with them. And so this man comes out with them. He has this, one of his kids on his shoulders, and they're going out. They're witnessing. They're testifying of Jesus and inviting people. So the brother who is sharing this message, he says, I went out to him. He said, listen, I don't know if it's a good idea for you to be out here with us. Because, I mean, if you got a death sentence on you, then, I mean, you're really jeopardizing all of us. And this is what he said. That brother um, Turkish brother says, this is the problem with you Americans. You see, over here, we already realize we are dead, and we're just waiting for it to happen. And you guys think that you have life, and nothing, death is never going to come. And, and the brother was honest enough to share that, which was communicated to him. It will, I think we'll do so much better if we will live as if we are martyrs. And if we live, praise the Lord, and if we die, well, praise the Lord that we be counted worthy to suffer. But I think we value our existence too much. I said we. I didn't say you. I said we. We value our existence and our comfort and our safety far too much. Can I just say candidly without really throwing stones at anybody? I just worked through this, and I don't know that I fully worked through it, but I, this whole thing of us being so afraid of dying in the last two years. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to take up your cross and you're going to die. What do we get all hung up about? We already, already have this statement from the Lord himself saying that we would die. I don't think we'd become foolish and cavalier and all the rest, but when we get that we're so afraid of dying that we don't even want to walk out Christianity anymore, that's a problem. We think we're alive. But actually, Jesus said, be my witnesses. I'll let you ponder it. I haven't fully worked through it, but it's certainly thoughts that have rumbled around in my mind and as I've worked through it. Well, verse 49, um, and actually, I'll just give you this reference. I'll give you a reference for uh, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, and um, why we should go, why we should be willing to be a martyr, and that's because Look what's going to happen to those who do not put their faith and trust in Jesus. So you can go look that up on your own, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. But for the sake of time, let's move on to verse 49. And here we see the necessity of being empowered. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued, you are clothed in power from on high. I, it's necessary that I died and I rose from the dead. It's necessary that you preach to the entire world both to repent and to know that they would be liberated from their guilt and their shame. It's necessary that you preach these things. But before you do that, there's one more thing that's necessary. Make sure you're empowered by the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God. Don't think of him as a force. Don't think of him as an electric current. Okay, 
It's, it's not that at all. Get Star Wars out of your mind. It's not a force. Okay? That is weird. That's not who the Holy Spirit is. He is a person. He is God. He is the third person of the Godhead. And Jesus said, it is better that I go away, that the Spirit might come. And, you know, it's sad. And if this is you, I just pray the Lord can correct this in your own heart. And I would venture to say, if you feel the way I'm about to describe, it's probably because you've been exposed to some pastor who did a very bad job of describing who the Holy Spirit is. There are a lot of people that are afraid of the Holy Spirit and what he might do in in their life. I'm good with the Father. I understand the Father. Abba, Father, that's great. And the Son, Jesus Christ, yes, the Lamb of God. The Holy Spirit, he kind of freaks me out a little bit. He does things that I'm not so certain I want to happen to me. Well, listen, we serve and worship one God who's manifested himself and three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. So he is in essence, the same stuff. He's the same substance as the Father, as is the Son. They have distinct ministries that they carry out, and the role of the Holy Spirit being many, but one of them is to empower us, to clothe us in the power of God. Not a better you know, form of yourself. Think about that for a minute. The power of God is not just to make you a better you. The power of God is altogether different than you or me. It's it's, it's the divine force of God, the power, not the Holy Spirit, but it's the divine force of God upon our life to do the ministry. Um, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which is really just, you know, Luke wrote this as well, so... You, you get almost a repeat, but in Acts 1.8 it says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So it's, it's a, almost a repeat of what we just read. But for emphasis sake, we, we read it twice. We need to be empowered. Well, wait a minute. I thought the gospel was the power of God into salvation. Absolutely. The message is the, is the power of God. For sure. To bring people to salvation. But you know what? It's not just the message that has power. The Lord also wants to empower what? The messenger. That we would go forth in power to proclaim a message that is the power of God unto salvation. In Acts chapter 2, we see this promise of the Father, which is you'll have the Holy Spirit come upon you in power. That's the promise. We see this being fulfilled. And they were gathered in the upper room. And as they were worshiping and waiting upon the Lord, there was a sound of a mighty rushing wind. And cloven tongues of fire appeared over each of their heads, and they began to speak in other tongues. And this created a chaos. They heard a chaos going on in this upper room. People began to gather outside and like, what is happening up there? And as they came out, they're like, what is going on? Are you guys like having a a party, a drunken party up there? It's like, "This this is, no, that's not it. Not at all. We're not drunk as you suppose. But this is that which was written by the prophet Joel. That in the last days that God would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. Again, that which was written. This had to happen. Because it was written that the church would be filled with power to go. And so what's the difference? What happens when you have a person that is not empowered 
And then you have a person that is empowered. I think there's one individual that gives us a perfect example of that. And can you guess which apostle I'm thinking of? Peter. What does Peter do when he is questioned and asked, hey, do you believe? Or, or, or aren't you one of his disciples? He denies Jesus. I don't know him. I don't know. He's afraid. He's scared. He's timid. And he denies the Lord. Even after, just like an hour earlier or so, the Lord has said, hey, Satan has asked for you. He wants to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. I'll never deny you. And then he goes and denies him shortly after that three times. He even knew it was going to happen, and he lacked the power to stand and be a witness. But then Acts chapter 2 happens, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And the town is filled, is jammed together, because it was the Feast of Pentecost. And people have jammed into the city, and Peter stands up, and he begins to preach the message. Just just do a comparison on your own. Read the message in Acts chapter 2, and read Peter's denial. Put them side by side and look at the authority and the power that he preaches the gospel with. And that day, 3,000 men were added to the church. He couldn't even even speak up and say that I know Jesus to a servant girl at nighttime. And now he stands up in front of at least 3,000 people. You have women, you have children, and those that don't believe that would have been out in the crowd. Thousands of people are gathered around. And now here's Peter, who was afraid to say to a servant girl, yeah, I'm a disciple of the Lord. He preaches a bold message. And you read that, and it is a bold message. And he says, you have taken with your lawless hands, you have crucified the prince of life. And it is the difference is, but before you go and be my witnesses, get clothed in the power of God. Be clothed with the power of the Lord. Listen, I have a, uh, I'm going to make a distinction, and I don't know that anybody else, I'm sure others agree with me, but I'm going to cut it real, real thin here. Sometimes I think we, we mistake the purpose of this power of God from on high to be a witness with the power, or with the power of the Holy Spirit to live a Christian life. So, this power comes upon me that I might be a witness and I might be a light. The power that I walk in to live a Christian life, is, I, would put, I would associate it more with the Ephesians 5. And be being filled with the Holy Spirit. I've got to be filled. I've got to allow that filling to come upon me. And as I do that, I'm going to be the husband. I'm going to be the, you know, the wife. I'm going to be the, the son or the daughter, the employer, the employee. Read through the rest of chapter 5. And you see all the different um, ways in which a spirit-filled Christian will live their life. And, and so there's a yielding that happens in my life to the Holy Spirit that I might be filled with the Spirit and might be the man or the woman I'm supposed to be. But then there is this experience with the Holy Spirit that is a power that comes upon the church to be a witness. Why am I making this? And I, hopefully you can pick up on it. Sometimes people are like, would you just pray for me to be filled with the Holy Spirit? I haven't been living the way I, 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 you know, I'm supposed to. And it's almost like you want me just to pray for you or somebody to pray for you, and you're going to have this, this endowment of power come upon you, and then you're going to be done with your struggle with sin. I got a newsflash for you. That's not the way it works. 
you're going to have to continue to die to yourself. You're going to have to. It's a matter of yielding your life. So as we talk about being filled with the Spirit, Ephesians chapter 5, I say for sanctification and godly living, this power is to be a witness. This is where the dunamis comes from. And so maybe you have had this confusion in your mind. It's like, well, I've been prayed to be filled with the Spirit, but I still struggle with sin. No, you've got to yield to the Spirit every single day. This is not a once-off moment experience. 20 years ago, I got filled with the Spirit, and I've never struggled with sin again. That's, that's not it. That's not reality. You've got to continue to yield your life and be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5. This is a, a, a power that comes upon you to be a witness. Now, again, maybe I'm shaving it too thin, but I, I'm willing to have a conversation about it. But for sure, when we're reading, reading it right here, what Acts 1.8, what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon us? You will be a witness. And in Luke 24.49, he talks about waiting in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. What did he just talk about? Being a witness. And this is what we need in our generation. This is what we need, is to go and proclaim the gospel, which is the power of God into salvation. But we also... I need to be empowered. I need to speak with boldness. I need to allow Christ to plead through me. I need to seek to persuade people to put their faith and trust in the Lord. So important. So if you've not been filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered to speak the word of the Lord, then we're going to pray for that in just a moment. But let's wrap it up here. We read there in 50 that they went to Bethany, this Mount of Olives. Okay, so this is a little village on the Mount of Olives. And um, I love this in verse 50. He lifted up his hands and blessed them. What did he say? Of course, we don't know. It's not recorded. But what is the blessing that Jesus pronounced? I want to give a suggestion to you. And um, this is in Numbers Chapter 6, you're familiar with it probably. Numbers chapter 6, verses 23 through 27. This is a blessing that the priests were to speak over the nation of Israel. Jesus is our high priest, isn't he? I'm not being dogmatic on this. But I think this is a great possibility of the blessing he spoke. Verse 23 says, Speak to Aaron, high priest, right? And his sons, which were also priests, saying, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face. And, and really, we're reading here the word Lord, but it's, it's the covenant name Yahweh. Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. I love that. I will just putting the name of the Lord upon the children of Israel. Maybe it's possible that it is that ironic uh, priestly blessing that as Jesus lifted up his hands and spoke to them that they were familiar with. And whatever it was that he said, I'm sure it was amazing. We see the response. They go home. They're so joyful. They're full of praise and worship. But could you imagine if it was that that Jesus said? And for them just to begin to process, wait a minute here. 
You are the one who died and rose from the dead. You atoned for sin. And now you're blessing us as a priest. And of course, we know he was a priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, book of Hebrews. So he, he speaks this blessing upon them. What, what, a, what a moment this must have been. And as he was doing this, he ascended into heaven, the right hand of the Father. Jesus didn't quit his job. He's still interceding for us. He is still at work, but he accomplished salvation. And so verses 52 and 3, they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. So a good example of how the church should function and live today is that we should continually be worshiping and praising and blessing the Lord. Don't we do enough worship around here? No, we don't. You know, continually is the, is the exhortation that we receive. So we see there the necessity of praise, right? Jesus ascends to the Father, um, and then we see the necessity of praising. This is how we should be living our life. So let's go ahead and close here, and let's just pray for obedience to that which is necessary. Obedience to preach. In the name of Jesus. He's not one in many ways. He's the only way. And am I willing to preach? I'm afraid. Well, let's pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon your life and my life and our life. That we can go and proclaim his name. And let's remember the necessity that um, yeah, we also are to be about worship and praise and giving thanks to the Lord. Oh, Father, we are grateful to you for so many reasons, Lord, but most of all that you would send your son to die on that cross for us. Lord, I pray that we would understand what sacrifice was made, what kind of love was, was poured out when you sent your son, and then you poured out your wrath on him, how you loved us, Lord, that you're willing to walk that out. Lord, we know we have a job. We know we have a responsibility. And we are humbled and we are privileged, Lord, to be your ambassadors. But we ask that you would give us, Lord, um, victory over fear. Victory over being double-minded about things. Here's one that you said, this is the uh, the necessary thing. And Lord, we can give our hands to a lot of things. But if we don't put our hands to the necessary thing, the last words you said before you went to heaven... And Lord, we're missing, we're missing what we should be doing. So speak to our hearts, Lord. Give us a heart to proclaim to the lost. Lord, may you break our heart for uh, what breaks yours. And lost people breaks your heart. And um, Lord, may we feel that. May we sense that. May we um, own that, the responsibility of, of the race that we're in being a faithful generation of believers that are proclaiming. And Lord, we want and need, because you said so, we need to be filled with your Holy Spirit. We want to be endued, clothed with that power from on high. That we might be able to speak as your servants have spoke throughout the ages. So wherever you are right now, If you're committing in your heart and your spirit to opening your mouth and speaking the gospel, then 
ask for the Lord to fill you with his Holy Spirit. Or give me power. This is, this is his idea. It's not our idea. He says, don't go into the world without this blessing. You're going to need it. Lord, we pray you would open up so many doors for us to share the gospel before this week is even out. Friends and neighbors and strangers in the community, Lord, help us to be thinking like we're on a mission trip because indeed we are. And so help us, Lord, to think like that, to be a light, to be a witness, and to proclaim your name until you return. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.